may be seated. In case you missed it, last month was the 100th birthday of the federal income tax. Did you celebrate? The U.S. Constitution promises to ensure domestic tranquility, to provide for the common defense, and to promote the general welfare. And these things are all possible because of taxes. Taxes pay for the good roads, clean air, safe food and drugs, and a strong military. Taxes make it possible for businesses to thrive, for children to attend school, and for hospitals to care for the sick. Tax dollars pay the salaries of firefighters and police officers. Taxes pay for emergency workers, for shelters and services needed when national, um, natural disasters happen. So as Sally Michael Moore of the Washington Post concludes, maybe the federal income tax should get a birthday party. It has, after all, given us civilization. Well, I don't think anybody's going to think something is wrong with you if you did not throw a party for the anniversary of the federal income tax, and if you don't choose to do so next February for its 101st. But if you entirely skip over a family member's birthday, your wedding anniversary, the graduation of a close friend and many other things like them, you're rightly going to be questioned. Now, there are certain things in life that call for celebration. There are events and accomplishments that ought to get us excited and that ought to cause us to feel genuine, true joy. And this experience of feeling joy and getting excited over things, it's one of the many evidences that we are created in the image of God. Because God Himself gets excited. And God Himself feels joy. God is a God of grand and spectacular celebration. What does God celebrate? What is it that gives God joy? Well, we catch a glimpse in the passage that Jason read for us earlier, Luke 15. We catch a glimpse in Luke chapter 15. I invite you to open your Bibles there again. Luke chapter 15. And, and in this chapter, we see three parables of Christ. There's the parable of the lost sheep. There's the parable of the lost coin. And then there's a longer and more detailed parable of the prodigal son, which, as I said last week, would really be better titled the parable of the compassionate father and his two lost sons. As we began to look at this parable last week, we considered the first point that Jesus was trying to make, and that is this. 
See the compassion of the Father. See the compassion of the Father. As the Son returned home, we see in this parable a graphic description of the extravagant and of the gracious love of God. I think that the second main point Jesus was making in this parable is that we must respond to this incredible display of love with joy. Jesus was trying to say this. This is something we must celebrate. We see this theme in the other two parables as well, the parables that came before. Really, the unifying theme of these three parables is joy. They are parables of God's joy. For at the center of Christianity is a God who is joyful in the act of saving. Like the parable of the banquet at the end of chapter 14, this parable in effect is saying, God is throwing a party. Are you going to come? So let's pick up where we left off last week. Son had returned home. It was time to celebrate. Follow along beginning in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things mean. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. As we see here in this story, when the elder brother heard from servant that his younger brother had returned home and had been welcomed by his father, he was livid, absolutely furious. It's clear that he's not excited that his brother came home And as angry as he may have been that his brother came back, he seems particularly angry that his father's so happy about it. We're going to look at in a few minutes why he was so furious. But it's obvious that without hesitation, the older brother takes his turn to disgrace his father. He refuses to go in to to what is perhaps the biggest feast the grandest public event that his father had ever put on. 
And the story comes to an unthinkable conclusion. The elder brother is left in his alienated state. The bad son enters the father's feast, but the good son will not. The lover of prostitutes is saved, but the man of moral decency is still lost. The sting of Jesus' parables come in the tale. And we can almost hear the Pharisees, I think, gasp as this story ends. It was a complete reversal of everything that they had been taught. A complete reversal of how they saw life. I, I think that we can easily see how the younger brother was lost. But the older brother... We have, to, we have to realize the older brother in this story is every bit as lost as the younger. It just looks a little different. It's not quite as obvious. He was like the Pharisees in the audience who took great pride in their good deeds. The older brother was like the person today who attends church, gives freely to charity, takes really good care of their family, and think they're a Christian. The Pharisees who heard Jesus and the older brother were in grave danger, as are people who are just like them today. In the words of Keller, elder brother lostness is so dangerous because they see nothing wrong with their condition. And that can be fatal. If you know you are sick, you may go to a doctor. If you don't know you're sick, you won't. You'll just die. It's important to consider this morning that it is very possible. It is a very real possibility that the older brother might represent you. As you sit here this morning, do you think that you're okay? Are you trusting in your moral performance for God's approval of you? Do you think that you are living a life good enough that God would, that God should accept you? Is your righteousness something that you're confident in? Or or is the pursuit of living a good life starting to get a little bit burdensome for you? I would urge you, on the basis of Jesus' words here, give up on the idea of justifying yourself before God. Just give up on that idea completely. You can no more do that than you can swim across Lake Calhoun with a 2,000 pound belt around your waist. You can't do it, it's impossible. 
You can't do it because no matter how nice of a person you may be, no matter how often you attend church, no matter how many good things you have done in your lifetime, you're a sinner. You're a guilty sinner. Because of that, because you're a sinner, you need God's grace for salvation, not your good work. And just as the father shows grace and compassion to the younger son who had blatantly sinned against him, the father here shows grace to the older son who had more subtly sinned against him. We see here in this account that the son sent a servant into the party. But the father did not send a servant out. The father came out himself to meet him, just as he'd done when he saw the younger son returning in the distance. And rather than storming out in anger to chew out his older son, he approached him with compassion and with grace. And he gently pleaded with him to come in, come in and join the celebration. This is how God approaches us in our self-righteousness. We, we deserve to be rejected forever because of our sin, but in His grace, God offers forgiveness and complete pardon through the only truly righteous man who ever lived, Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for sin, and if you will repent of your self-righteousness and trust alone in Christ's righteousness, you will be saved from God's wrath and brought back into a relationship with God. The French mathematician Blaise Pascal said that every human philosophy or religion will lead to one of two things. It will lead to either pride or it will lead to despair. I think he's right. And we see a picture of that very thing here in this parable. You see, the older son sought fulfillment and happiness through keeping all of the rules. And what was the result for him? Oh, he was consumed by pride. The younger son sought fulfillment and happiness through getting rid of all of the rules. And how did that go for him? He ended up in despair. Pascal goes on to state that only the gospel, only the good news of Jesus Christ is able to deal with both pride and despair. For the gospel shows that God's law must be perfectly obeyed. But we can't keep it perfectly. So there's no place for pride. And the gospel shows us the Savior, Jesus Christ, who has perfectly obeyed the law on our behalf, which takes away and removes any despair. We realize and see here that the conclusion of this parable is strikingly open-ended. 
did the older brother respond to his father's plea and go into the house and join the party? We don't know. But the bigger question is one that you must answer. And that is this. How will you respond? How will you respond to the Father's tender and gracious compassion? Again, I encourage you, embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of your good deeds. And embrace, through faith, the perfect righteousness of Christ. Now it is impossible for, it is impossible to truly base your acceptance on, by God, with your own works and be a Christian. That's impossible. We cannot be a Christian and base our acceptance with God on our good works. So in that sense, Christians are not like the older brother, right? There's a significant sense in which we as Christians are not like the older brother. But, but there are ways that we can be older brother type Christians. Our guiding philosophy in life as Christians must fundamentally rest on the truth of the gospel. But the way that we act and think oftentimes is inconsistent with the gospel that we claim to believe. In other words, there can be gaps. There can be gaps between what we believe and what we do. It's what Lane and Tripp call the gospel gap. And this gap won't stay empty. We will fill it with some sort of mix of gospel truths and worldly philosophy. We will fill this gap with a counterfeit gospel. And of the seven counterfeit gospels that Lane and Tripp describe in their book, How People Change, two of them have older brother written all over them. See if you can make the connection. First is formalism. I participate in the regular meetings and ministries of the church, so I feel like my life is under control. I'm always in church but it really has little impact on my heart or on how I live. I may become judgmental and impatient with those who do not have the same commitment as I do. The second is legalism. I live by the rules. Rules I create for myself and rules I create for others. I feel good if I can keep my own rules and I become arrogant and full of contempt when others don't meet the standards I set for them. There is no joy in my life because there's no grace to be celebrated. If we honestly and carefully examine our hearts, I think that every one of us will see to one degree or another traces of the older brother. Remember the point of this parable that we started with this morning? 
Jesus intended for his audience to respond with joy to the compassionate love of the Father. It was an invitation to celebrate and to rejoice. Since the kingdom was inaugurated by Christ and forgiveness is being dispensed, even if there's evil present in the world, joy should characterize our lives. In fact, it must. It must. I was struck by the wording at the beginning of verse 32. In our ESV, the Father says it was fitting to celebrate. But several other English translations, I think rightly and appropriately translate it, we had to celebrate. The Father was saying, this wasn't optional. He's back. We had to throw a party. And this parable shows us how wretched it is to call ourselves Christians and yet be a stranger in the grumbling servant in the house of God. Something is desperately wrong when this joy is missing in our lives. How can this be? What is it that robs us of this joy? And I think the answer lies in the heart of the older brother. The answer lies in the heart of the older brother where we see three qualities that stifle, that shrivel up, that rob the joy that we must have. The first is anger. The first is anger. We see that right away in verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His heart was filled with anger. His words here were dripping with resentment. Uh, The news he had just received did not line up with how he thought things should go. And rather than just being disappointed and sad, he became deeply angry. He became bitter. You see, if we believe that if we live a good life, we will naturally assume that we should get a good life. God owes us a smooth road if we try so hard to live up to His standards. And so when things go wrong, we're naturally going to be angry with God. I don't deserve this after how hard I've been working to be a decent person and live up to your moral standards, God, this just isn't right. And the issue here really comes down to why. Why are we striving to be faithful in the first place? Why is it that we are serving together in this church? Is it motivated by love that flows out of the abundant compassion of the Father? Or is it really selfishness disguised as service? Service that goes along just fine as long as the results are beneficial to me and to my liking. You see, the elder brother Christians expect their goodness to pay off. And if it doesn't, There's confusion and rage that flows out of the effort to control one's life 
through personal performance. And I think it's pretty easy for us to see how there's no joy in this. The older brother was focused completely on how his world got messed with. And because of that, he was completely incapable of celebrating the return of his brother. And I think we should ask ourselves this morning, is there traces of this anger in our hearts? Can, can you see this anger in your heart? Do you respond like the older brother when things don't go your way in life? When things don't go your way in ministry? I would encourage you and urge you to look to the cross of Christ and remind yourself that no matter what happens in your life, as bad as it may be, it is still far better than what you deserve. What is it after all that we really deserve? We deserve, we deserve eternal fire in hell. But we've received mercy in Christ. And with that perspective, no matter what you may dislike about what is happening in your life, if that's your perspective, joy will displace anger and you will celebrate the compassion of the Father. The second quality in the heart of the older brother that robs us of our joy is pride. Is pride. It's really clear to us here that the older brother had a very strong sense of his superiority. I mean, he very quickly to his father pointed out how much his own moral record was better than, superior to his little brother, this lover of prostitutes. And in very disdainful language, we see in verse 30, he refers to his brother as this son of yours. He won't even own his own brother as brother anymore. Not even lowering himself to acknowledge his own relation to him. Since he bases his self-image on being hardworking, moral, and smart, and savvy, he feels superior to those who do not share the same qualities. Competitive comparison is the main way the older brother, older brothers achieve a sense of their own significance. We as Christians know that God loves us and accepts us in Jesus apart from our personal spiritual achievements. We know that. But if we don't consciously live in that reality, we will subconsciously be radically insecure, which in the words of Loveless shows itself in pride, a fierce, defensive assertion of our own righteousness, and a defensive criticism of others. Let's consider two ways that pride affected the older brother. First, his pride kept him from loving his own brother. Since he was superior to his lowly, sinful brother, there was no compassion whatsoever for him. He was just like the Pharisees who thought they were superior to the tax collectors 
and the sinners. And one of the things that drove them absolutely crazy about Jesus was he spent time with these people. In verse 2 of this chapter, as it begins, we see that. They, they grumbled. This man receives sinners and eats with them. In chapter 5 of Luke, there, there's a story, a great story of Jesus calling Levi to follow him. Levi follows him. He was a tax collector. Levi was a tax collector. He follows Christ. Well, Levi naturally then was filled with joy. Levi wanted to celebrate. The lost had been found. It's time for a party. So Levi threw a party and invited over to his house all of his tax collecting friends. And Jesus was there. Well, the Pharisees were absolutely livid. And they asked Jesus' disciples, why does Jesus eat with these people? And Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now there is no question in this parable that Jesus was defending his frequent association with tax collectors and with sinners. But Jesus didn't just eat with them. Jesus actively sought them out like the shepherd who went after the lost sheep. Like the woman who searched diligently for the lost coin. You see, pride will keep us from caring about sinners. And it will certainly keep us from going out of our way to find them. So the elder brother's pride affected his love and compassion for the lost, for his younger brother. Second, the elder brother's pride led to an unforgiving in a judgmental spirit. The elder brother here cannot forgive his younger brother because he feels superior to him. His brother had been with prostitutes after all. While he had been home living a moral, chaste life, abiding by the rules. And because he doesn't see himself as a sinner, he is trapped in his own bitterness of how his younger brother had affected his life. You see, it is impossible to forgive someone if you feel superior to him or if you feel superior to her. If there's no need for God to forgive you, then there's really no need for you to forgive others. I wonder this morning if you see any evidence in your heart of the elder brother's pride. Here's some questions that I think will help us discern traces of this in our own hearts. Do you really care for the souls of your unbelieving friends? Are you seeking the lost? That is, are you purposefully pursuing relationships with neighbors, co-workers, and friends with the intention of speaking of Christ to them, sharing the gospel with them? Is there someone that you just cannot forgive? 
Third question, is it easier for you to conceive of God saving you than someone else? And last, when you hear of someone caught in sin, do you find it utterly incomprehensible? Is your first reaction when you hear of that something to this effect? I could never. I would never do that. While imprisoned in the Tower of London, the English reformer and martyr John Bradford, he saw a group of prisoners being led to their execution. And this is what he said as he saw them. He said, There, but for the grace of God, goes John Bradford. Pride stifles joy. We won't seek out lost sinners and we will not celebrate their salvation if we think that we are better than they are. But when we look to the cross, when we look to the cross and understand God's grace as John Bradford did, there will be no feeling of superiority in our hearts will be filled with joy. The third heart issue of the older brother that stifles our joy is that of dutiful service. Dutiful service. He boasts to his father of his obedience, but then he lets his under, underlying motive slip out when he says in verse 29, all of these years I have served you Now, being faithful to any commitment does involve a certain degree of dutifulness. In life, there are often times we simply don't feel like doing what we ought to do, but we do it anyway because we know it's the right thing to do. We can't ever completely avoid this aspect of duty. But we see here, I think, that, that we see here in the older brother that his obedience was only duty. It was nothing but duty all the way down. There's no evidence here of joy. There's no evidence of love or reward. There's no evidence of seeking to see his father pleased. Ultimately, the older brother is being obedient and he's serving only for his own benefit. In his excellent book on this parable entitled The Prodigal God, Tim Keller shares a story that illustrates this really well. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew a big, enormous carrot. So he took it to the king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown. It's the greatest carrot I'll ever grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched. He discerned the man's heart, and so he turned. As, as the gardener turned, the king said, Wait, wait. You are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a big plot of land right next to yours and I'm going to give it to you. I want you to use it and grow even more. 
the gardener was amazed. He was delighted and he, he left his heart full of joy. Well, there was a nobleman at the king's court who got wind of this. And he said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what will the king give you for something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king with a handsome black stallion. He bowed and said, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred and ever will breed. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you, king. Well, the king discerned his heart and said thank you, took the horse, and sent him on his way. The nobleman was puzzled and perplexed. He was a little bit miffed. And the king said, hold on, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot. But you were giving yourself the horse. The elder brother Christians may do good to others, but not out of delight in the deeds themselves, or not out of the love for people, and not out of pleasure for God. Do you see in your heart this morning any trace of the older brother's dutiful service? I don't think it's too hard to find. Just look for places where there's no joy. Look for where in your service there's no joy. There's no joy in this type of service because at the end of the day, it's really all about you. We must see this and repent of this sin and consider once again the gospel of Jesus Christ where we see our Savior who did not serve merely out of duty, but served out of love. And he knew of the joy that came from serving this way. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We will respond to the Father's compassion with joy when we serve not just out of duty, but out of love. Snodgrass said that joy is not an optional feature of the faith. Nor can it be attained by smiling more or singing louder. It must emerge from an awareness of the mercy and forgiveness of God. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> this issue really is all about the compassion and love of the Father that is freely offered to us in Christ. So if we really understand the Gospel, if we really are affected by the Gospel, and if the Gospel continues to be what we focus on, we're not going to be older brother Christians. No. 
we will not look like Him at all. We will be filled with joy. Our lives will be marked by joy in the anger, the pride, the dutiful service won't have a home. It will not have a place in our hearts. On July 1st, 1555, John Bradford was brought to Newgate Prison to be burned at the stake. He was chained to the stake at Smithfield with another man. They were chained together on the stake. The man's name was John Leaf. Before the fire was lit, Bradford turned to John Leaf and said this. He said, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. John Bradford understood his own sinfulness. He understood the compassionate grace of the Father. And because of that, because of that, he was filled with joy. He was filled with joy as he was facing fire all the way to the end as he was facing the flames. See, John Bradford knew that his father was throwing a party. Oh, and he'd been celebrating. He'd already been celebrating. And he absolutely could not wait to get there. May the same thing be true of us as we consider God's word this morning. Father, we thank you. We thank you for seeking after us in our sin. Thank you for being the shepherd who sought us out. Thank you, Father, for calling us to yourself and drawing us back into relationship with you through Christ. We confess, Father, that although we know of your compassion, we know of this grace, we often fail to be consciously affected by it. And oftentimes we look like the older brother. Forgive us, Father, of our anger, our proud hearts, Forgive us, Father, for service that is void of love and driven solely by duty. And Father, fill our hearts with joy. We pray, Father, that this joy would mark our lives, that it would mark our families. We pray that it would be a joy that marks our church. May we speak often to each other of your saving grace in our lives. May we celebrate that. And Father, we pray for those here who are yet to experience this joy. For anyone here this morning who doesn't see their sin and thinks they're okay because of their own goodness. Father, we pray that You would break through their deception and show them their need for a Savior. Do this work, we pray, Father, for Your glory. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen.